listeners and welcome to the David Crick Podcast. I'm your host, Britt Lawton, and today I'm sitting with Teresa Hardman. Teresa is an architect, artist, designer, and dancer. She describes herself as curious, complex, and playful. Having had 26 years of experience teaching design and drawing to architect students at university, Teresa is passionate about creativity in all forms and recently completed a PhD thesis on nurturing the non-rational aspects of the creative process. In other words, how can she teach you to access the most personal, unique, creative voice that is yours and only yours? So we're looking forward to discussing creative intuition with Teresa. And in this episode, you can hear more about the creative process, how it influences education, how Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy are able to fuse and what you can take away and start actioning right now as an artist. Welcome to the David Crit Project space and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thanks Britt, I'm very honoured to be here. So I don't know if you want to give us a bit of background like how your research started or your interest in this topic started? Sure, from a personal point of view I have been creative in many ways. I've, I've, as a child and as a, in, up, to, up until my 30s I was a dancer, taught um, contemporary jazz, fell into studying architecture not knowing what was ahead of me, through architecture, I discovered that I could draw, and I love I love drawing and printmaking. And um, I ended up teaching architecture at the architecture school in Port Elizabeth. Um, and there, I started teaching first. I was teaching first year students, and was faced with the dilemma of how how do you teach someone to be creative? How do you undo all the fixed concepts that they have in their mind, particularly after twelve years of schooling which really narrows your, your mind and your thinking and so my task was to undo all this in the, in the students and get them to be truly themselves in, in their response to the design challenges that I set um, and I was seeing a lot of students running off to journals and copying what others were doing and what was cool at the time and I found that to be really um, inauthentic and not, to me, not real creativity. So I, I've embarked on, I've been reading about creativity and how you nurture it and how you enable it for over 20 years. And um, this ultimately led me to the area of creative intuition, which is the area that I'm really interested in. It's basically the, the non-rational side of the creative process. So it's not mind mapping or brainstorming or um, it's a very, very mysterious part of the creative process that most artists know, but they don't really know how it works, and, and that was what I wanted to find out. You use the word inauthentic, which is quite interesting. So I've got a few questions in what you've just said. What would you define as creativity then, and how is it considered authentic, or how would you, as an outsider, be able to say that a creative isn't being authentic? <laughs> it's a, a tricky question. Um, yeah, first of all, what is creativity? Creativity is, it has many definitions, um, and in my research I've come across hundreds. But essentially it's agreed upon that the most user-friendly um, definition of creativity is when you bring something new into the world, which is of value. In other words, it, it has to have some sort of value, whether it's a functional value or a value of meaning, um, or social value, so it's novelty and um, usefulness or value, so that is creativity. 
Then um, the inauthentic and the, the what I call true creativity. As I mentioned, very often, um, particularly students, when they're unsure of themselves, they haven't found their voice, they haven't really kind of plummeted the depths of who they are, grasp for clues from what other artists are doing and start throwing together a bit of this and a bit of that. And in the early stages of learning to be an artist, I think there's nothing wrong with working in the style of someone else in order to learn their vocabulary. Um, but ultimately what you want to do is find your own voice. And to me, creative expression is expressing how you as an individual see the world. Unlike anybody else in the world, your take on where you are right now or the person that's sitting opposite you. And if you really tune in to, to, to yourself, it will be a fresh revelation that, interestingly, um, people usually find very exciting and, and they're curious about it because they haven't seen that or heard that before. So whether it's music or dance or poetry or painting or printmaking, it applies to all of the disciplines. Um, and in fact, my research even covered science. I mean, some of the greatest scientific um, inventions have been really big creative leaps. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That actually leads me into what I was going to ask you next, which is in terms of rational and non-rational thinking and how that applies to creativity. I mean, a lot of artists do the research and inform themselves of what it is that they're inquiring in their work and what their body of work is interrogating and is about. Would you say there's that balance between that um, rational and irrational thought in terms of being creative? It's definitely a balance and, and obviously there's a need for rational processes as well. Um, in, in architecture, which is a field that I was trained in, um, there's a very, very kind of um, simplistic model of the creative process, but it's actually quite um, succinct. And in the preparation stage of any creative process, you, you, whether you're an architect or a dancer or a painter, you're going to go and immerse yourself in the challenge that you... If you're an architect, it's a design brief. It's a, a site. It's a client. You, you find out all you can about this challenge that you, you're embarking on. As a painter, you go and you research or you immerse yourself in the field or in the theme that you wish to explore. And there comes a point where you, you need to stop. You, you need to, when you're saturated, you need to kind of stop, let go. And that old familiar saying of, you know, when you're in the shower, you have the greatest ideas. When you're driving down the freeway, it's when you let go and when the thinking mind stops that the intuition and non-rational stuff emerges. And it emerges completely unforced. It, it doesn't have to be willed. And some people find it rather difficult letting go and stopping the rational mind. Um, they want to be in control all the way of the process. Mm. Um, and, and I've drawn quite a lot from William Kentridge's um, interviews on YouTube and, and his books where I read about how he, he talks about when he's in the studio and he calls it a, a safe space for stupidity and <laughs> where he allows these highways, he calls them highways of consciousness, to come bumbling in and then he doesn't know, you know, he just goes with it. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, Kentridge expresses the, the experience of creative intuition very beautifully. 
He does, and I think also what Kentry speaks about is that idea of play and yes. allowing, like you say, to let go and play yes. and, and not try and force some sort of rational thought into something. Um, yes. and, and, no, and no preconceived ideas. I teach art as well, so I, I see my students, you know, they want to make a painting that looks like this at the end. And it's so boring. <laughs> it's much more fun to actually embark on this journey of not knowing where it's going to take you. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's exciting stuff. <laughs> it is. And I mean, I'm glad that you're here to ask this question too, because I've always been in conversation with people about how do you teach art? How do you teach creativity? I mean, is it something innate that people are born with or not born with? Or how do you tap into that creativity? Okay. Lots of questions there. The first thing is, um, I think, I think we're all born creative to a certain extent. And, uh, and um, I think we come with this latent creative force, creative energy inside us. I mean, we, if you think about it, we're all, we're part of nature. We're part, if you look at nature, you look at the, the forces of nature, everything is about growth and, and creation. It's, it's, it's this ever-expanding um, energy which our whole universe consists of. So how can we be different? Then, of course, w the family that we're born into is, is the next step. Um, do we, are we born into a family of artists who, who nurture it? And um, are we exposed with art all the time and music and poetry? And obviously those things are, are great advantages. I didn't have that um, advantage. I, I grew up with um, a dad who worked at a factory and my mom was a bookkeeper and there was no great art on the walls or great literature on the shelves. But dance was my thing. And, and I don't know how or why, but from age five, I had to dance. And I also used to write a bit of poetry. So I think maybe the urge is stronger in some people than others. And others have the, the advantage of having a, a, a creative childhood, uh, surrounded by creative people. But I also think it is something that if you want to develop it, if you feel a little stirring inside you, and I do believe it is in all of us, in various directions. For example, my son is a computer programmer. He's very creative in his own field. He's not satisfied with just copying and repeating. He wants to make new things. Um, so that's his language. So, so yes, I, and, I, and I think creative expression can be nurtured I don't like to say taught, I think skills can be taught, I think techniques can be taught and those things are essential because those things are your language. It's like learning words in order to be able to write poetry. You need to know how to use a paintbrush or the printing press or the pencil or the gouache or whatever you work with. It's, it's building up your, your vocabulary but then it's this other things, other driving energy that, that I'm interested in. I mean, you touched on so many great things there. I'm so glad you brought up the, the idea of like being like in a different, I suppose, not necessarily what people consider the creative industry, but it still uses creativity. Absolutely. And, and everyone does have that, you know, innate creative. I think Absolutely. as human beings, we're naturally creative. But it's that drive, as you've mentioned, that, you know, what is it that makes you pursue that creativity yeah, and yeah. what tools and what informs it. Exactly, um, and, and they're different tools for different fields, but it's that, that urge to, to explore and find out what if, what if I did this, what if I did that, and yeah, it exists in, in all fields. 
And I just wish people would be aware of it, that it's the, the creative arts are just one side of creative expression. There's so much more, so many more ways of, of expressing yourself. You've just got to find out what your particular language is. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, also in terms of the environment and teaching um, creativity, I mean, there's a lot of influence that takes place in your surroundings and in your what you're exposed to and that kind of informs your lexicon of what you draw from in order to be creative exactly. and think of it in a new way. Exactly. How would you kind of couple like ideas of say spirituality or the emotional side of things with the logical or skillful technical aspects of creativity? Okay, so I've followed um, I've been reading Eastern philosophy for most of my life and that's that sort of spiritual tradition of Zen makes the most sense to me in terms of how I live my life. But that aside, um, I've, I've also found that it helped me very much to understand the the process of being creative, being in the moment, um, engaging 100% with what you're doing. It's commonly and fashionably referred to as mindfulness at the moment, but I <laughs> think that's a bit of a misnomer because I think it's almost mindlessness you're engaged with something but your mind is switched off you're engaging with it in an embodied 100% present way but not with a mind chattering in the background so I kind of I prefer mindlessness but I do get mindfulness I know what they're getting at so when I started studying creative intuition I read and I read and I read and I, I, I read for probably 15 years before I actually came upon the word intuition uh, I didn't even know what to call this this weird mystical aspect of, of the creative process which people who don't understand the process tend to think it's sort of airy fairy mystical new age stuff however I read and I read and I came acro across a book on literature and the, this and it's interesting the poets and the writers are the ones who write about their creative processes the most Obviously, mm -hmm. because words are their thing. They're the ones I learned most from. And the term creative intuition was, was brought up. And I then followed that thread, and it took me to the French philosopher Henri Bergson, and it took me to Carl Jung, the psychologist, it took me to Zen. Um, and so it was a fusion of Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, and psychology that ultimately drove my thinking as I, as I researched. And I did my research very intuitively as well. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't have a hypothesis and a... I had an aim. I wanted to find out what this mysterious thing was. But my research was intuitive as well. Creative intuition involves four aspects of creative intuition, which are very important to understand. And in the talk, I'm going to really expand on them and, and explain what I mean by them. But briefly, the first thing is that, that intuition involves an expanded state of consciousness. It's in other words, you're conscious of so much more than just what your eyes can see and what your ears can hear and what your skin can feel and what your brain can think. So I go into expanded consciousness, which is an extraordinary state. And it's similar to the state of flow, um, which is described in that very famous book. The second thing is that uh, this expanded state of consciousness um, requires you to be very open and fluid. In other words, you kind of got to have an attitude of, of surrender and allowing and be comfortable with not knowing. That's very important. And that's mm -hmm. very difficult for most people. 
The third thing is that it involves, um, it, it requires you to engage with particularity. In other words, with not a thought or a concept, but with an act of doing, whether it's carving a piece of wood, putting paint on canvas. So you engage 100% with a very concrete and particular thing or act. And that gives rise to emotion. And those emotions are very, very personal. So the emotions that come up in me will be very different to you doing exactly the same thing. And then being open to those emotions is what brings out the intuition. So the emotions are actually a vehicle for intuition. Yeah, it was a long mm -hmm. answer, but I no, but that's that's I fantastic. No, that is that is fantastic. It absolutely makes sense. I mean, that kind of way of thinking and being open and receptive to those experiences, because as you also mentioned, it's that perception. Even if I was to trace or copy exactly what you're doing, mm -hmm. mine's going to be completely different. Mm -hmm. If you allow yourself to yes. be yourself. Yes. But if you try to be me, it will be inauthentic. <laughs> I actually recently read, I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named Shrikumar Rao, and he speaks about how we experience the world through sensations, images, feelings and thoughts. Yes. And that basically is unique to all of us, and that's why, exactly. as you've mentioned, if you're open and receptive to that being comfortable with not knowing mm -hmm. and engage mm. wholly with your experience, mm. um, you can translate it into a you know, very interesting and unique image or experience exactly. for somebody else. And that's open, open to every sense. Your, your deepest memories, your, and, and all of that stuff lies in the unconscious. And, and Jung talks about that. He, he, he says that the, the unconscious is this vast, untapped world of potential. And it, it's sitting in our bodies. We, we're holding memories in our bodies. We're holding memories in our brains. And the minute you allow yourself to relax and stop being defensive and competitive and trying to achieve, that unconscious comes up. And the most, I mean, normally when you talk about the unconscious, sitting in meditation is, is one way of, of bringing it up through silence, through solitude. Solitude is essential. Solitude, long periods of solitude. But doing, making, is also an act of meditation. You don't have to sit on the cushion in the lotus position. <laughs> you, you can engage in that meditative process of unfolding yeah. and emergence yes. of all that is you. And then, okay, so just one quick question then, on t in terms of solitude. Um, I do agree with you in, in, in it being very important. Also in the arts, uh, a lot of, especially what we work with at Devika Projects is concepts of collaboration. Mm -hmm. So I just wondered what your thoughts are or that relationship between the essential nature of having solitude and that also, is there an essential nature to collaboration and to... When you say collaboration, do you mean collaboration between two individuals? Yeah, so with our print workshop, how we often collaborate with mm -hmm. artists is we invite them into the workshop, mm -hmm. we've got the print technicians and experts that are yeah. able to contribute to their ideas and concepts to create a body of work together. Okay, okay. Um, and then also and you've got the artist working with yeah. the print technician. Yes. So, so then in essence, what is happening is that the technician, print, the skilled print technician, collaborating with the, the artist, they're actually in a dialogue in the printing studio, and it's important that they are left in solitude. 
to do their thing so that their their process because interruption is it's it's like cutting off a thread which has been embroidered from many many sources and you so so you need time and you need uninterrupted lengths of time so so whether it's two people working together or a group working together it's an entity that that needs to then engage as an entity and create something together and Alternatively, it's just you in your studio. Mm. Okay, I, I get that. So you'd say with, with collaboration, still there's an essential nature in solitude together. Yes. In order yes. to access that creative energy. I think so. so. I think so. Awesome. Yeah. No, that yeah. does definitely make sense. So you're mentioning a lot of psychologists and philosophical influences in your research. Who would you say or what would you say was the most significant influence in your research? There's a guy called Henri Bersong. Um, who was a French philosopher in the 1920s and he had this philosophy of flux. He described life, the, the process of life, as being a continuously expanding, undetermined, sort of like a growth outwards. And his big thing was that we do not know what is going to happen within the next second, actually. People think that they're in control of time. They know what they're going to do at 3 o'clock, and they know what they're going to do at 4 o'clock, and, they know, and they're completely in control, and they know what they're going to do on the 25th of September, and don't mess with my plans. <laughs> However, life is not like that. It is fluid. He um, described this absolutely unpredictable nature of being alive. And to me, that was a really fundamental breakthrough because it enabled me to understand how we can get stuck by trapping ourselves in this mode of being in control and being in our heads all the time. Obviously we need a little bit of planning and to engage with other people, but when we're able to, we need to be open to every passing moment, as if it were new. Because mm -hmm. every passing moment is new. Is that, that being present? Yes. Um, yeah. And who was it? Marina Abramovich. Abramovich, yes. Exactly. So once you start understanding creative intuition and then you read artist's biographies and then you kind of have these little aha moments, you ah, <laughs> I understand. Mm. Just to touch on what you're saying now about illusion of control, like mm. tra trying to plan the future and stuff. Mm. I heard this great thing the future is a belief system. To prove a point, if you believe in time, if you believe in the future, raise your hand tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Doesn't exist. laughs> yeah. Which so there's this beautiful, beautiful book um, by Randas called yes. Be Here Now. Oh, I love, I love Randas. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so the Eastern influence is very present as well because obviously what Bergson was saying is, is exactly what Zen is about. It's very interesting that in my reading I eventually found out that philosophers like Heidegger actually had contact with Zen philosophers. So, the, so the, this, this whole separation of East and West is also a kind of a, a man-made divide. In philosophy these threads and ways of seeing the world are, are coming together mm. in places. There are philosophical streams that think what I'm saying is absolute nonsense, <laughs> but that's fine. <laughs> I can only really talk about my own experience as an artist and a dancer yes. and what I know from experience. And that is actually how my research also started, not only from teaching, but also these little moments when I'm creating and I make something that 
totally was unplanned. Yes. And those are the most delightful things. Mm -hmm. um, but then also in trying to teach others and sort of reinforced that. Mm. So which came first in terms of your own career and experience? It yeah. was a bit of a mixture. As I say, as a, as a girl, as a young girl, I danced. I lived for ballet. I nearly became a ballet teacher. Thank heavens I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I then, by pure chance, started studying architecture. Someone had suggested it to me. And I actually was awarded a five-year bursary and just thought, whoops, I'm just jumping into this, not knowing what I... However, I loved it. At school, I did math, science, biology, no art subjects. <laughs> At architecture school, I realized I loved drawing. I loved... In those days, there were no computers, so we did everything by hand, watercolors, painting. That's when I realized that, that maybe I could draw and could develop that side of me. Then I started working, practicing as an architect, um, and in the evenings I would go to artists in Port Elizabeth, and um, I would sort of attach myself to <laughs> people who were really good at pastels, and people who were really good at printmaking, and others who were really good at oil painting, and I sort of lay at their feet <laughs> one by one and learned as much, sucked up as much as I could in terms of technique. And then I was offered a position to lecture at the University of Port Elizabeth in the architecture school. And I actually lectured first year students for 16 years. <sighs> I get wow. exhausted just thinking of it. And it was at that time that I, I would listen to some of my colleagues saying to the students, go and just go and look at that journal, you know, do a roof like so-and-so did in that building. And, and I wasn't satisfied with that. I, I, was, I was actually deeply dissatisfied with that sort of approach. And I thought, no, I want to empower my students to find their own voice. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started reading, 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 and while I was teaching. And I presented a few papers as a lecturer at university at conferences. In 2011, I had a bit of a, I suppose you could call it a midlife crisis. I, <laughs> I just had enough of teaching and I had enough of academia and I jumped out of the academic world not knowing what I was going to do. Uh, but then I started, I set up a little drawing studio and started teaching drawing. Um, and that has evolved over the years. I now teach two mornings a week and I teach Saturday morning workshops. But it's not only drawing, drawing is always the basis of everything, but we also explore different media. And always with this, this view of enabling people to, to find themselves. Um, but my, my husband, who was also a lecturer at the university, left the university in 2013. We set up an architectural practice. So now I'm practicing as an architect, teaching art, and having just completed this big research paper. I want to share it with the world. I want to take it out there. And I've been invited to a conference in Southern Oregon, a creativity conference with some of the top creativity researchers, because they're very excited. This is a field of creativity research that hasn't, it's always mentioned in, in creativity research. They always say intuition has a role to play, but that's about as far as it goes. And intuition deserves to be um, researched. So I, to come that challenge. Mm. 
No, it's amazing, and I think it's great that now, I mean, you've got these opportunities and platforms to share this knowledge. Yep, um, and as you said, in order to empower artists, empower art students, to tap into that creativity and see... What's well, possible, yeah. And educators and art teachers, you know, how to kind of get more out of your students. Yes. So do you ever teach teachers how to teach? Is that a thing? <laughs> Not at the moment, but I can see it going that way. Right. Not that I would want to teach them how to teach, but I would like them to be aware of this other aspect yes. called creative intuition. Yes. Which the, the problem is, you know, having been in an academic environment for 26 years, I know how academics think. And anything that can't be measured or <laughs> explained rationally is not acceptable. And so I think in a way it was my mission to demystify what was seen as an essentially mysterious thing. In fact, I remember once saying to a lecturer in the fine arts department when I was, when I was early in the days of my research, and I, I started speaking about this creative intuition. I, in fact, I didn't even have the word then. I said to her, have you read this book? Have you read this? And she said, we don't read or write about those things, we just do them. So I thought, yeah, you do, um, fair enough, but I want to know why and how, and I want to bring it into mainstream academia. And there are, there are departments of creativity in American universities. It's actually quite big there. They actually have whole departments devoted to understanding all the aspects that make up this thing called creativity psychological, social, various things. And so mine kind of is a hybrid of psychology and philosophy and my degree is in philosophy. So I, I would like to actually take it back into the halls of academia. Yes, of course. <laughs> That's also in America. Would you say, like, what's the context like here, locally? Not much interest, no. not much interest. And there is interest in me presenting hands-on workshops, demonstrating you're walking the talk, demonstrating what I've written about. So I've had a bit of interest from South Af one South African university. But no, there's not a great field of creativity research in South Africa. I attended one creativity conference in South Africa about five years ago, and it was primarily aimed at businessmen. De Bono's five thinking hats. Put on this hat when you're talking to the client, put on that hat mm -hmm. when you're talking to the boss, and in the end, this is how you will make more money. Mm. Okay. You know, so I kind of didn't fit in there, even though I presented my little talk. <laughs> but nothing quite like what I'm doing. Mm. No, I thought, well, that's why I say I think it's wonderful that you're now in a position where you're able to share this knowledge. And what is your um, paper actually titled? And can people access it and read it if they want? It's it's called Understanding Creative Intuition: Perspectives from Eastern and Western Philosophy. Um, there is a short paper on academia.edu, the website. I uploaded the full paper after I finished the PhD, but I was subsequ subsequently asked to remove it by Unisa Press, who wants to publish it as a book. Oh, they wonderful. are very, very excited, and I'm very excited. Congratulations. Yeah, That's so they want, to, they want to publish it as a book, not just for academics, but for everybody, which is great. I've, I've always thought I don't want my research to stand on a university bookshelf for the rest of my life. Yeah. I want to get it out there. So I'd like to publish with UNISA and then they apparently 
the, the chances of co-publishing with Rutledge are also very good, which is the, the British press. And then I'd like to publish my own little illustrated <laughs> fun book, you know, sort of very personal book explaining it. Yes. Yeah, I suppose a less like academic. Yeah, although, although the book that Unisa wants is, they want it to be not academic. Okay. Yeah, they want it to be easily digestible and they've already come up with ideas for the cover and yes. it's great enthusiasm. So I'm so excited yeah, to hear that because, I mean, that's also something that sometimes gets lost in academia. Exactly. It's that, it's that like, how do you make it accessible mm. to everyone? And it's important research that you're doing and it would be sad if it became just an academic book that was in the shelf somewhere in a university exactly. and shuts away. So yeah. I'm so pleased to hear that and congratulations. Awesome, thank um, you. If I was a art student or somebody listening to this, what kind of actions would you recommend I could do right away in order to drive my creative process? Well, apart from the things that I've mentioned, like learn to be in the moment, try and stop the thinking mind while you are doing. There's some beautiful, in my, in my research, there are beautiful examples of, of that describe that, but essentially it's, it's about stopping the chattering mind, being in the moment, being open to whatever comes up as you're making, not being afraid to, to feel emotion. Emotion is a driving force of, of creativity in the mainstream world, if you express emotion at a business cocktail function, you know, you're kind of looked at strangely. <laughs> so emotion is something which we need to own as artists, and particularly our own emotions and our own reactions to things. I would also say learn your skills, learn your medium, learn your materials, whether it's dance or poetry or painting. Learn Get, get really good at what you're working with so that, because that also, when you are absolutely fluent with your medium, um, you don't have to think, you just grab the brush, you know, you're, in, you're in, in your body. Whereas if you're still fairly uncomfortable with the medium, you, you, you have to think about what you're doing. Should I use the fine brush? Should I use this paint or that paint or that? So you kind of have to become very familiar with your medium so that the intuition can come out. Mm. I love that you say, well, that saying that you use in your body, the word inspired. Yes. Coming from inspiration. Inspirare. <laughs> to breathe in. So Paul Clay talks about going into a forest of green and he says he, he walks through the forest and he, he, he absorbs all the green and, and the word inspirare means to inhale. So you, you fill yourself. That's another thing. You need to be very open and aware to what's around you so that you're constantly filling your reservoir of uh, material that ultimately gets transformed into your personal response. So you've got to be open and aware to, of everything around you. So Paul Clay goes into the forest, he inhales, immerses all the screen, and then he talks about actually emptying himself on the canvas. He says it's like an inhalation and an exhalation. When, I, when you said inspire, I immediately mm. thought of that beautiful example because it's when you get excited about something, whether it's a, a fruit fly or a, <laughs> <laughs> or a leaf that's hanging in a certain way on a certain tree, in a certain light. Allow yourself to get excited by that. And I do think a lot of artists will probably resonate with that because it is 
I'd say that that inspiration, that if you do pursue it and you do in that moment respond to what it is that's triggered that response, yeah, you're bound to get into some sort of flow state and yep. create something. Exactly. And that's, that is exciting and that exactly. is wonderful advice, I suppose. And yeah, I, I, th I think it's letting go of that control and being open, as you said. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's wonderful advice. If I, if I was an artist, I would be <laughs> very pleased to hear that. Cool, um, thank you. There is, oh, there was one more question I wanted to ask you, and this is just purely my own interest. Words or, or images, would you value one more than the other? Personally? Yes. I love both. <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> I think most artists do as well. I love both. But intuition happens in the realm of the pre-verbal. It's a feeling. So when you read Mary Oliver's poetry, you feel exactly what she was feeling at that moment. Her medium is words. She uses the words to express that emotional experience of being there at that particular moment. And you feel like you're there with her. Words can be an obstacle to intuition. Um, the minute you, you verbalize something, the minute I say I'm going to, I'm going to do a still life today. Just by saying those words, it conjures up all the still lives you've seen in your life and all the preconceived ideas of what you think a still life should be. However, if you don't label things or situations and just embark on the journey without words and without thinking, then through your medium you express it, whether it's through words or through paint or through through movement, I'm through sure. A dance. That's a huge one. And you're, I'm a dancer. You're a dancer, so. dancer and an artist and an architect. <laughs> so I'm, I'm actually quite experienced in many fields. I've, ex I've felt these things in all these fields. And I know the power of words. Not that I'm great with words, but I can appreciate. Like Mary Oliver's, just awesome. My interest also comes into that, that words and imagery because obviously working in the arts, I mean, so often. There's an explanation for the artwork, there's an explanation for the image, mm. um, which gives context. But mm. as you've mentioned as well, it always comes with like, you know, your, your existing knowledge that, mm. that gets placed onto the, the work that allows yes. you to interpret yes. it, and then you lose that intuitive experience or that emotional experience. So I think the work. possibly as an artist, you can possibly explain some aspects of your artwork, but maybe there are things that you can't explain, and I don't think you should have to explain them. If, if, if the artwork is successful, i.e. does it really communicate with the viewer? Does it resonate? Does it yeah. make some sense of meaning? Does it make the viewer think of something in, maybe in their life? Then I don't see why you need to explain everything. I think there's certain things that can be explained, but I'm very cautious of post-rationalization and too many words mm -hmm. after the fact. Intuition doesn't exist in a vacuum, it, yeah. it, it feeds off what you're thinking, what you've thought, what you've said, what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. It's all part of the totality of being human. Yes, that human experience. And yeah, full it human experience. Yeah, I've loved every minute of what you had cool. to say. And, um, do you have like a website or a blog site or somewhere where oh, people can find out more? I'm not, I'm not that organized yet. I am planning to set up a website particularly now that I want to take this thing around the world, because I really do. So I will be setting up a website, probably called TeresaHardman.com. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, for the moment, you can find me on Facebook. 
Teresa Hardman, then my art page, and also it includes my art classes and workshops that I present, is called Dao Lu, which is a nonsense name, inspired by my, one of my favorite Taoist philosophers, Lao Tzu. And then Dao Lu, I was just playing, I thought, you know what, I don't want my name, because another thing about intuition is it doesn't like ego. Ego steps in the way. So I thought, let me, let me create a playful name so that I can play. So you'll find my art and my students' artwork on Daolu, T-A-O-L-U. I haven't made much art lately because I've been <laughs> researching. The world has got in the way, but I am going to dive back into it. And um, also being an architect, I have to buy the dog food. <laughs> <laughs> so I do many things, but um, I'm, I'm really dying to get back into the studio. I can imagine. And um, yeah, so that's where you'll find me. And I'm on Instagram as, as Teresa Harden and Daolu Makes. Great. We'll, we'll put all the links um, in the description, of awesome. course. And yeah, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all this information. And we're looking forward to your published books, as well as a potential talk coming up at David Crip Project soon. I'd love to come and share <laughs> what I know at the Blue House. Fantastic. Thanks, Britt. Thanks, Teresa. Thanks again for listening to the David Crit podcast. For more information, follow us on Instagram at David Crit Projects as well as Facebook. All links that have been mentioned in this podcast will be found in the description below.